0: Welcome to
1: the Pooch Parenting Podcast, a podcast for parents with dogs. I'm Michelle Stern, a certified professional dog trainer, mom, and former teacher. Living with kids and dogs at the same time can feel like a circus. I know because I lived it too. Join us as we interview a variety of experts and parents to discuss topics that will make parenting with dogs easier, safer, and less chaotic. Also, you can love living with your dog again. I'll always keep it real which might even mean that you hear the messiness of life in the background on occasion, but at least you know you're not alone. Today's episode of the Pooch Parenting Podcast is filled with a lot of really big feelings and heated emotions. And so I would like to set the stage for you before we dive in and let you know what inspired this podcast to happen in the first place. So a member of the Pooch Parenting Society, Mary, sent me a Facebook post the other day asking for my opinion on the post. She has two special needs children and had some pretty big feelings about the post and she wanted to see if I felt the same as she did. And I definitely do. I want to tell you what that Facebook post was about, but before I do that, I just want to make sure that everybody understands that my philosophy of teaching and of just being like is very much the golden rule. Treat others as you wish to be treated. I work with dogs in a way that does not use force or fear or intimidation. And when I teach my human end of the leash, my human clients, I try so hard to help them feel loved and supported. And I try very hard not to make people feel badly for their ignorance. And I say ignorance, not in a place of judgment, but ignorance in the place of, we just don't know what we don't know. So where I stand day to day um, is just, I don't like bashing. I don't like hatred. I don't like vitriol. And so this podcast episode, while there are a lot of big feelings happening, is not going to be a bashing episode. It's gonna be a teaching episode because I know and believe a thousand percent that when people know better, they do better, okay? So I wanna dive in and talk about the reason for this episode. So the Facebook post that Mary shared with me was written, and I'm not gonna mention the name of the rescue, um, but I think that's irrelevant. Uh, It was written by the founder of a rescue organization and she was, explaining her justification not to adopt dogs to families who have children with autism. Okay, I wanna make sure you understood that right. (laughs) She was saying she refuses to adopt to families who have autistic kids, okay? She's labeled a entire group of people as a red flag and as a group of people that are inappropriate to live with dogs right okay so i'm channeling temple grandin here who of course is one of the most well-known animal advocates she has autism autism has informed everything about her work with animals because she's more sensitive to animals than a lot of other people just because of how she's wired so i think she'd be fuming if she saw this post because she has become who she is and she is a legendary in shaping the world of animal welfare because of her autism. And I thank her so much for that. So I wanna remind people before I get too heated here um, that the reason that a lot of people go into the animal welfare industry is that they love animals and they want what's best for animals. And I believe, and I I hope this is true that the person who founded that rescue organization wanted to rescue dogs because she loves dogs. And I think that that's super. However, I, do not see that loving dogs is an excuse for bigotry of any size, shape, or form. So that said, I'm a dog and child specialist, which I'm sure you know, which is why we have this podcast. I want to offer support to families who want dogs in their life when they have kids. And a lot of people try and fail to adopt dogs. Um, Some organizations have blanket policies that say, we do not adopt to children who are 10 or under and i understand that policy i don't necessarily agree with it but i understand it because rescues are often on a shoestring budget they don't have the resources to support families to try to ensure that the dog is successful in a home that has a child in it and that the parents raising that child are successful in a dog in a home with a dog in it right and while i wish that every shelter and rescue would share my resources i have so many free ones as something that these families can use. Not everybody knows I exist, obviously. Um, But what this rescue is doing uh, by excluding an entire population of people is so inappropriate. And it, it hurts my heart because for a lot of children, whether they're on the spectrum or not, whether they're neurodivergent or not, animals, bring them peace, animals bring them calm. And in fact, there's an entire field of animal assisted therapy that brings in animals specifically to help people to regulate and to live a better life. And so obviously if this entire population was dangerous then we'd be putting these therapy dogs in danger which is absurd as so much of this whole thing is. So, I have a special guest here today, and we are going to discuss a lot of this. Her name is Lizzie, and I'm going to ask you, Lizzie, to please introduce yourself. Tell us your pronouns and explain why I invited you here today.
0: So hi, um, I'm Lizzie Duffy, and I go by she, her. Um, I am an occupational therapist um, for 14 years, and I'm also autistic. Um, I have a son who is autistic as well. Um, my background with animals is pretty extensive as well. I have um, my dad is a veterinarian, and his clinic was in the basement of my home growing up. Um, <laughs> and we've donated, uh, we've rescued my husband and I for dogs in the last like twelve years, and. All of them have had significant support needs, um, and we've had to navigate some some things with our child as well. Um, so I have experience personally, and then also professionally from an occupational therapy standpoint, and then also as an autistic person um, to bring some perspective. Um, to to this, and I also have a nonprofit that I'm the president of called Minnesota Neurodivergent Education Advocacy and Therapy Services, or Minnesota NEAT for short. And a big part of what we do is try to educate about neurodivergent um, people um, using neurodivergent people as the educators. So. I'm very glad to be a part of this and I hope um, we can have a good conversation about how to best support the dogs and the families.
1: I really appreciate this because I am not neurodivergent although one of my children is and I don't wanna speak for everybody and I'm really happy to have you here to help me so that we can provide information from different perspectives all of us though with the focus of trying to help others do better and to try to not only help parents and children be successful living with dogs but vice versa because i think at the end of the day dogs that have negative interactions with children don't tend to either have a very long lifespan because they get euthanized for inappropriate interactions or they get returned to shelters over and over and over again Now one thing I do want to point out, um, the reason that the woman came up with her policy is that she had two incidents over a gigantic period of 22 years running her rescue where children who were on the autism spectrum harmed dogs that they had adopted from her. And they harmed those dogs in the middle of tantrums or rages or, or a violent outburst that they had. Um, this gave me a lot of, I don't know, really big feelings myself because my son had a lot of issues like that, although they were never, ever, ever geared towards the dog. And in fact, um, the dog that we lived with at the time was a dog that I adopted when I was very impatiently waiting for my son's adoption to come through from Guatemala. I was in that maternal phase where I was like, must mother things and the adoption was taking a long time. And so I just went out and got a dog, which was totally absurd in retrospect. And I have to admit, I was pretty clueless. That was 20 years ago. And I didn't know very much. I didn't think very hard about the traits of the dog I was bringing home, whether or not he would be successful with young children or vice versa, if my kids would be successful with him. And I just got so lucky. But a lot of people don't get lucky. And that's why I'm I'm actually in business because a lot of dogs don't enjoy living with children. And so while this particular woman had two incidents where the children had violent outbursts against the dog, what is much, much, much more common is that the dog makes a decision that they're uncomfortable living with kids. And she's not mentioning that. She's not talking about You know, how many times a dog was returned because a neurotypical child and dog didn't get along. She's not talking about other dogs that were returned for other reasons that had to do with kids or babies or anything else. Um, So, this feels like a targeted attack to me. And it's really frustrating because I saw the beautiful relationship my son and dog had that even at his worst, my dog chose to sleep with him at night. It was the most beautiful thing. And they got something from each other. And a policy like this prevents people from having even the chance at an opportunity to have a relationship like this, to have an animal in the home that can bring peace and comfort to a child and, and vice versa, even to the parents. I think we need to value our own experience as the the human running the household is like, we get overwhelmed too. And sometimes the best part of my day is, the time I have with my dog, and it brings me peace and comfort. So I want to dive in a little bit with you and talk about a study that you found for me, which I think is super important. This woman who wrote the Facebook article um, quoted a statistic, which is just wrong. It's flat out wrong. She said that one of the volunteers she had um, who works with people who are neurodivergent in her professional job said that 99% 99% of her autistic students have outbursts and can be aggressive and violent. So Lizzie, can you talk to me a little bit about the research paper that you found um, and the statistics that they were showing instead? And if you forget the number, I do have it here.
0: Yeah, um, it's it's a re- really if you Google research on this, you're going to find this in as um, as a link um, pretty quickly. But they, she was summarizing, the researchers were summarizing um, measures of aggression for autistic people, um, children in particular, and they were looking at a variety of different studies. So they were synthesizing different studies and what they found. Some studies found as low as 9% uh, um, autistic kids showed aggression. And the highest that they found was 56%. And this was researchers who were looking specifically at aggression in autistic children. So they had looked at multiple across multiple studies. So it's important to note, you know, that yes, this does occur, um, but it isn't even part of the diagnostic criteria for, uh, for autism. So we we need to be aware that it does occur, but neurotypical kids also get aggressive. Adults get aggressive. It's it's part of the picture of development and um, humanity really.
1: Yeah, I like that you said that, and I agree with you. I think that all children can have tantrums and all dogs can also have tantrums. And I think that some of the factors that contribute to those um, big feelings, as I say, are, you know, are you hungry? Are you tired? Are you overstimulated? Right? Those are big triggers that are common. Um, There's a phrase that we talk about in dog training. And I'm curious, Lizzie, as to what you think about this phrase when you're working with your, um, your students or patients, I don't know what you call them, the people you work with, the kids, um, is that we call it trigger stacking, And essentially trigger stacking is the straw that broke the camel's back. So there could be any number of triggers. So let's say we're talking about a trigger for a child that leads up to a tantrum. These triggers could be immediate, maybe they happen right before the behavior, but they could also be long lasting. So maybe you're packing your house to move and maybe you're getting a lot of deliveries. And so the doorbell is ringing and maybe your nap schedule is thrown off a little bit, and maybe you're a little bit hungry and cranky. And you know what I'm saying? So there are a lot of things, factors in your environment that can lead to an outburst, whether you're on the spectrum or not. And the same is true for dogs. So we talk about trigger stacking when um, when I have a family and they're not understanding their dog's behavior and they're not understanding why the dog um, may be acting in a way that is, quote, inappropriate at a certain time of day. And it's because maybe triggers for them include they live in San Francisco on a busy street corner. The garbage man comes three times a week the you know the dog down the hall doesn't start stop barking. the child yells a lot, whatever it is right but all of those factors can contribute to a dog's behavior yielding in an outburst or a display of what some people would call an inappropriate display of behavior right um, I think it's just so important that we just normalize the fact that we are not consistent. All the time with our behavior, whether you are a child or whether whether you're an adult. Adults are more consistent because we have a more highly developed prefrontal cortex. Um, but I I would love to talk a little bit more about this with you because you understand brain development, right? And there's a specific age at which humans begin to kind of develop some impulse control. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, um, impulse control. Um, for emotions and behaviors really doesn't even start developing until a child is three and a half to four years of age. And it continues to develop and into the twenties. So, and, and we could probably all think of adults where it hasn't developed, Uh (laughs) Um, you know, and, and every person has a different path of development for just about everything. And it's not gonna be a straight linear course. It can be ups and downs, backs and forths. But I think it's really important to understand that dogs who even have less <laughs> impulse control and kids who are just learning these, these skills, um, we definitely need to be providing support. For both the dog and the child. And we have to have realistic expectations developmentally for both the dog and the child as to where they're at. What can we realistically expect for a child? Um, if, they, if, if we can see that they're having a bad day, we might need to make some modifications to be sure that both the child and the dog are safe. I love
1: that you said that because I think one of the biggest pieces when we either adopt out a dog or somebody gets a dog from a breeder or anything else, um, or when someone who already has a dog is adopting a child or pregnant with a child, right? So whether you're adding a dog or whether you're adding a human to the family, um, that we have appropriate expectations that. We fantasize and wish that our kid and dog would be best friends. I mean, that's the dream. We all want that. Um, But in order to make a relationship feel positive from both perspectives, from the kids and from the dog's perspective, that we have to set everybody up for success. And a lot of times I'm putting myself in there as that ignorant dog adopter 20 years ago. I'm, I'm in that bucket too. I've learned a lot since then is that I just threw the dog into the mix. I already had a one-year-old child at home. The rescue didn't even ask me about that. And I, they didn't ask me if I had any baby gates. They didn't ask me if I had a pen or a crate or an outside where, you know, they didn't ask if I had the ability emotionally and logistically to have separation of the dog and child sometimes they didn't ask what my level of motivation was to learn how to read the dog's body language they didn't know what my parenting experience was like right i was clueless and i got really lucky but a lot of parents who go into this just don't know what they don't know and so they have these really lofty expectations which set everyone up to fail so i really appreciate that you talked about really, you have to read the room constantly. How is everyone feeling, right? And it is something that should not be taken lightly by anybody who is interested in either adding a dog or adding a child to a family that has a dog. Like it's constant, constant vigilance. And if you can't have eyes on the back of your head, then you need to use management strategies to take the place of that because we can't be everywhere at once. I mean, We have to use the toilet and we have to fold laundry and we have to make dinner and we have to read bedtime stories and do bath time and change diapers right we cannot watch our dog every second so we have to have systems in place and it really helps to have somebody you know like me who's a mom i know what it's like to live with these animals who can just give people some simple resources and say hey if you want to be successful with your new dog here are my five top tips, right? I would be so happy to share those so that people could be successful. But you talked to me um, before we did this podcast that, that there were several areas that play a role in behavior, right? Expectations, which we just talked about, was one of them. You have some other ones as well. And I would love to dive into those a bit because I think they're Super important. So let's start in and talk about personal issues like physiological, psychological needs, sensory processing, and all of that stuff. How does that come into play for any family?
0: Yeah, so I, I think we need to understand that um, well, the the four areas that I really like to look at for behavior are person factors are what I call them, um, the environment. The activity, which doesn't have to be a formal activity, but maybe walking the dog is a good example. Um, And then also expectations. All of these factors play a role um, in the way that we behave. And when we look at personal factors, it can be something as simple as our neurology. Um, Our brains are developing as children. We also have an autonomic nervous system where we may have, um, it may kick in an automatic response to stress or to a trigger, which also occurs with dogs. Um, and we have things like uh, you were talking about our being hungry, tired, um, the way our bodies process sensory information. So dog barking might not bother some people, but other people, it may really take a toll on you throughout the day. um you know, and looking at even person factors of like physical um, skills. So if you, like, if you think about your frail grandma and having a rambunctious puppy, uh, we, you know, ma- thinking about those factors as well. Or um, even the ability of a baby to be able to move away from a dog or a toddler approaching a dog. Mm-hmm. um those kind of factors play a role also in the child's, um, regulation and ability to, um, behave. And so if they don't feel safe, if their needs aren't met, if they're hungry, tired, if they're sick of hearing the dog bark, or maybe the dog is too, like, I, I've had dogs that are just always in your face, you know, that can really wear on a person. So, um, we have to think about those personal factors, about neurology, about the physical skills, the way, or even our cognition. Um, mm-hmm. Can we problem solve um, communication too? If the child can't communicate what's bothering them, um, we need to have a little bit more of that hypervigilance of really watching the dogs and the child's um, states as they're
1: interacting. It's so interesting you said that. I was actually thinking about um, a lot of interactions that I see in my line of work and that I hear about in my line of work, which are that um, some children have sensory uh, needs for input. And so they're constantly trying to touch the dog because maybe their dog is fluffy or soft. And so the child compulsively pats or strokes the dog which helps the child maybe regulate but some dogs really dislike that and so i was thinking about how what you just said it really does go both ways right that the dog may or may not have the skills to know that they should get up and leave if something feels inappropriate or unsafe. Um, So the toddler running towards the dog to go pet them and the dog may be like, whoa, hang on there. And some dogs know to leave and some dogs don't know to leave. And in fact, I've been working hard at trying to learn how to teach dogs to leave so that I can help my clients because a lot of dogs are put in a place of conflict that they want to be near you, the mom or the dad or whoever you are, the adult in the room. But the toddler is also in the room and the dog is a little bit stressed out because they want to be near you, but they feel unsafe with the toddler. And so they don't necessarily think that they should get up and leave because that means they're not near you, their source of comfort. So that personal conflict. And and also, again, if the toddler is touching too much or the child of any age is touching too much, stroking the dog because of sensory needs, um, some dogs may lose patience and may just turn around and bite them, right? So we have to look at um, levels. I was going to say levels of tolerance, but tolerance is a really loaded word for me. I feel like everyone expects our dogs to be tolerant, but I feel like That is like the lowest bar and it's so unfair to the dog to say, well, you should put up with anything. I think that's kind of absurd. But what I would say is that um, if you're going to have a dog in a house with kids, it darn well better be tolerant, right? Like, like if we're going to try to set things up from a safety perspective, we want the dog that loves to be around the kids, even if they're annoying, not the dog that's constantly trying to leave. Right. That to me just feels like a bad match.
0: So, yes, definitely. Um, yeah. I think it's it is trying to um, and I think that is really the responsibility of the rescue and if you can't put into practice or have some some way of trying to provide good matching, then then you probably need to look again at whether or not you should be adopting dogs out period, um, yeah. Yeah. Because because we do need to have, um, it's not fair to the dog to get returned if there's not a good match. It's not fair to that family. It breaks the kid's heart. I mean, all of those things, it's important to really think about all of these factors. And I think yeah. families should be educated a little bit more too before adopting dogs that they might need to be, thinking about these factors and looking at that when they're looking at choosing a dog.
1: I agree. I, you know, this makes me think about my friend Maria and I I was just texting her this morning because I know that um, she, she has two little girls, seven and nine, and she had been looking for a long time to adopt a dog. And, you know, many rescue organizations said no, because we don't adopt to kids under 10 right we if you have kids under the age of 10 it's just a flat out no and um she she it was interesting what she said um to me was really i think important and telling um she said and I, I'm going to read what she said to me, because I, I don't want to, I she was more articulate than I am. She said, I think the most frustrating thing was feeling that we were being cut off from a potentially great dog simply because of the kids ages with no room for flexibility related to our experience or the dog's personality. But she did finally find a rescue that was willing to make an appropriate match based on the actual dog and based on the actual family. Um, So that was really great. And she basically was saying that she loves when rescues have dogs in foster families, because you get to know how the dog is in a real situation. So for example, um, the shelter that I used to work at would say things in the profile that were really helpful, like I think this should be an only dog, right? And and we base that on our experience, looking at how this dog behaved around other dogs, right? So any shelter or rescue that um, really takes the time to get to know each of these dogs as they should can tell you, you know what? This dog wouldn't be good with kids because it chases or this dog really has to be an only dog or this dog needs to make sure that it does not live in a city where it's going to have constant input of dogs and motorcycles because it has so much fear it needs to be somewhere quiet or whatever it is Um, but I I do think that speaks to the challenge of many rescues and shelters of, of just being strapped for resources and so they don't necessarily have the ability to dive in and really make good matches. But then that begs the question, should they be placing dogs at all? Because like you said earlier, I mean, you need to set the family up with appropriate expectations for who this dog is that they're bringing home and vice versa, they they don't want the dog returned, right? I don't know, I would love your thoughts on that. And then we can talk about some of the other of the four factors that you mentioned.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, um, when we're, sorry, that's my dog barking. Oh, that's okay. Um, This is life. uh, um, I think when we're looking at that, like, really, if you think of services in any other sector, you want to be sure that if you're providing services, you're providing them well. And so that should be a part of the model, I think, when you're, if if someone is looking at beginning a foster-based rescue or a shelter, How do we really ensure that we're providing these services well and setting it up for success? And I honestly don't think that it would be that costly to provide just a little bit of um, additional information or training to potential adopters um, and to, you know, be looking at, um, at services or, you know, that may be helpful when... We're adopting to a family with kids or other yeah. dogs or other cats yeah. or whatever I think else. So is there. I don't think it would take that much more financially. No.
1: It's interesting because I I actually have a class, a workshop. It's an on-demand workshop called Kid and Dog Relationships. And it's super affordable. And I feel like gosh, let's just tack on a teeny bit of money to the adoption fee if the dog is going home to a family that has kids on it and give those people access to that class. Because it has a resource guide, it talks about dog body language that's a red flag that says the dog is nervous or stressed because most people don't have any idea that a dog licking its lips doesn't just want your dinner. It it actually reflects that the dog is uncomfortable or. You know, there's a million different bits of dog body language. That's not what we're going to talk about. But you get what I'm saying is that this this workshop and resource guide would provide valuable information and, you know, let's make it totally affordable and tack on a little bit of money to every dog adoption that that goes out to a family with child. Because, you know, a lot of, I know that shelters from my work at at the shelter where I worked, a lot of um, their reputation, I guess, is based on these numbers of adoptions, right? And so when they look at, and this is oftentimes how they get funding, this is often what how the board operates is is how many adoptions are we placing, how many dogs are euthanized, how many, you know, they they look at data, lots of data. and um, And a dog that gets returned or euthanized is not good for the numbers. And so putting in a little bit of effort up front, I think, like you just said, would do a lot to make them successful, make the dogs put in successful placements, make the shelter look good so they could get more funding. Cause nobody wants dogs to be ping ponged back and forth between placements. I mean, that is so much stress. I foster puppies for another organization. Now Um, they're an independent rescue, you know, and uh, and they do place dogs in families with children. And I have to confess, <laughs> so I had a litter of puppies. They're my Hanukkah litter. So I, they they came to me on ha- the first night of Hanukkah. And so I named them all after Hanukkah things. Um, unfortunately, they all got their names changed once they got adopted, which made me sad, but I understand. Um, anyway, they um, there were two of the puppies that made me a little bit nervous about going home to families with kids. And I, of course, am oversensitive to this because this is what I do. And so I was a little bit worried. Um, And so when the rescue, they do the most amazing job at vetting potential applicants. So by the time the applicants come to me to actually meet the dogs, we have talked to them on the phone. They've been profiled and, and they've been deemed to be appropriate. So when they came to me and met the puppies and they had a child and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so nervous about this. I was able to say, okay, here is the good, the bad, and the ugly about this puppy. And here's what I am worried about because you have a kiddo. So let's talk about how we're going to make sure that the dog doesn't make a mistake and that your child doesn't make a mistake that's going to get this puppy returned, right? I was able to be that face, even though I was terrified, just ask any of my friends, I was like, having this crisis of confidence that here I am in this position where I have an amazing potential family. And I am so worried that this puppy might not be a good fit. I don't know that I will ever feel a 1000% certain that any dog in any family is going to be a thousand percent the right, right fit but i had to think okay i'm a professional here's i have to weigh what i know and i have to be generous with my knowledge because if i am generous with my knowledge and i come from a place without judgment then they can call me and ask me questions if they get nervous about something right And I have since gotten reports from all of those families saying this is the best dog in the world and we're having the best time and my kids are in heaven and this is the dog I've always dreamed of and I was like. A puddle of tears when I would get those text messages and my husband was wondering what happened and I'm like it's so amazing, you know, but I I was nervous I placing dogs is a really hard thing. I don't know that I could ever take on that responsibility myself, right? I don't know that I would want that responsibility. It's huge. So a blanket statement of no kids might just be easier if you're not going to provide the resources that it takes than saying, okay, all kids, but those with autism. I mean, come on. I don't see any greater risk there than anywhere else than any family let alone whether they had kids or not it's just so frustrating okay let's go back i diverge i apologize i want to go back to some of those four factors that influence a human's behavior because that's what this is all about we want humans to behave appropriately around dogs and vice versa of course um we talked about personal factors such as physiological psychological sensory all those needs we talked about expectations so, let's talk about the environment and the activity pieces of it.
0: yeah, and I like even for those personal factors, if we're supporting those correctly, so um, you know, if we know that a kid has sensitivity to sound, we might want to make sure that they have headphones on um if if we've got a dog that's barking um or nearby. And we may need to do additional training with a dog, you know, having those things in mind for uh, supporting personal factors um, and also the separating if when needed. Um, When we're looking at environmental factors, there's a little bit of overlap, um, but we're we're thinking kind of again about um, like you were saying for a dog. If it's a busy street and there's someone walking by all the time and that stresses the dog out that's not you might need to close the curtains um, the same way with a kid if we know that my son comes home every day from school and he's exhausted and cranky that is not the time to be having the dogs all over him we might need to separate the dogs from him until he starts to feel more regulated um you know so If he and we also know, you know, if my son's really stressed and he he doesn't he likes more dimly lit, less busy rooms, we might want to make sure that's um, part of the day to day process. That we aren't having him sitting under bright lights and having the dogs there and all of this other um, environmental factors people other people are also environmental factors so if they have siblings or if you're annoying your own child which we as parents do we need to all take you need to take that into account like all of these factors play a role and can um, really impact the child's regulation and ability to uh, maintain control so, Thinking about those environmental factors, can we modify some of these things? And that also goes into, let's say, taking a walk. And we know that a dog is reactive. We're going to want to be making sure that we're walking the dog when there's not many people around um, at a time of day or, you know, The same way with a kid, if a kid gets overstimulated by people, we want to not be walking the dog with the kid at a busy time of day where there's lots of cars driving by. Um, So just really thinking about those environmental factors. And we can support those things. We can come up with solutions um, if we think about it in that way. Like, let's address those personal factors. Let's think about these environmental factors how can we make it easier for the dog and the child?
1: Um, Yeah, this is so helpful. I feel like working with an occupational therapist or working with a dog professional can support both ends of those things because we can, occupational therapy is something I'm familiar with because we used it with my son. Um, It helped him learn self-regulation skills. And for him, he needed a lot of motion in his body to regulate. So that kind of drove me crazy because we are so different from each other that his constant motion was like stressing me out. But then I couldn't constantly be trying to micromanage him because then he wouldn't be able to calm himself down. So he was either spinning or flipping upside down all the time um, and needed a lot of sensory input and so, working with an occupational therapy helped me so much to help him in a place from less judgment, if that makes any sense. Like he was able to do more things like chewing, crunching, sucking, those kinds of things as self-regulatory that were a little bit less, um, motion oriented because he could do those things in his own body and they helped him to regulate also. Um, But then also working with a dog specialist, because sometimes we do need to bring a little bit of training in to support a dog to, for example, be more comfortable behind a barrier so that we can have, you know, a break or some distance between them or teaching the dog an alternate behavior to jumping on our kids when the dog gets overexcited, right? So it seems like, as with all sorts of things that relate to parenting, that that we need a team. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't feel like we can parent in isolation. And um, it seems like this is a really, really good example of a discriminatory act that says you are incapable of developing a team to support you. And so we are just not going to do business with you. Doesn't sit well with me.
0: No. And I think, you know, all people need support. We all do, we all like to think of independence, but we all need support in some ways. So, um, and, and just really, like you said, coming from it, from not a point of judgment, we're all different. We all have different needs and realizing we, there are so many factors that we can support and modify and adapt just like with the activity even and it kind of this overlaps a lot with the environment as well like the walking the dog example Um, we're gonna want to be sure that we're doing the activity at the appropriate time of day the appropriate frequency so if we have a kid like your son who needs a lot of movement my son needs a lot of movement we're going to maybe Hey, this is a great activity. The dog and the child is really bonding. Let's do a couple walks a day together. Um, They're getting along great. Or if we see, oh, this dog is reactive. The kid gets stressed. They don't like taking the walk. They're bored. It causes disruption. Maybe our expectation for that activity, including the child in it, we might say, you get to stay home while I walk the dog. And hey, that's okay. You know, maybe your thought when you adopted a dog was to teach your child some um, skills of like taking care of something. And your thought was he was going to walk the dog every day. You may need to change that expectation if it's not working. So being flexible, um, thinking about those activities. Can we change the time? Um, Can we change how we do the activity Um, if the dog or child gets stressed at particular times of the day, like during bath time for a child, we might know we need to give the dog a Kong, put them in their crate, and we, we keep the child away from the dog during that time. Um, you know, so being, thinking about those, all of those factors and how we can support them, I think can set both the dog and the family up for success.
1: This is so helpful, Lizzie. You are just the perfect person for this. I am so incredibly grateful for you. Do you have any last comments or feedback? What would you tell this woman who wrote this post, excluding families with autistic children from her program? Any, any last minute feedback for her? I'm sure she won't hear this because she's being inundated with some really vitriolic issues. Uh, feedback, but um, I don't know. I do think this could be a helpful one for her to hear. What would you have to say to her?
0: Yeah, I think we need to have, you know, I think it's, our, our culture is so charged right now. And it is, we have every right to be upset when um, a group is excluded. I, I deal with this all the time. But if we come to someone with anger um, that isn't tempered with a little bit of um, empathy and understanding where she was coming from, we're not going to solve the problem. Um, I'd like her to rethink things and maybe, like, I feel like she felt like she did her work by consulting a professional that agreed with her. But you know, before you make decisions like these, I think she made it out of emotional response. She was upset that the dog got hurt. Take some time, think about it, get some feedback from different people, not just one person. Um, making sure that we, um, it, it may have been a good cue to her that, hey, maybe there's something that I could do different to let this not happen again. Since this happened twice, how what can I change? Um, so that the dogs and families are successful. She didn't really think about how those families felt. They were probably devastated. Um, they're already going through challenging things. Um, so really, I think when we're professionals or if we provide a service or um, we need to be really thinking about, can we get more input, more feedback from people and not just make judgments so quickly? Again, can we take and look at some of these personal factors, these environmental factors, the activity factors, expectations? within ourselves and within the whole situation, I think companies could do that as well. Like what could we do differently um, so that we are more successful? Um, But hopefully, you know, if she does hear this podcast, she will realize that there are places she can go to for support, to find solutions. It doesn't have to be complicated. Um, and these families do deserve to have access just like all other families, unless you said like some shelters, they recognize we don't have the resources. We just don't adopt to kids under the age of 10, but it's not, um, it's unfortunate that these things happen, but they do. And it's, um, I think if we can spread more awareness and have some positive um, solutions, maybe things will change.
1: Oh, I love everything about that, Lizzie. Thank you so much. I'm really happy that you could talk with me today, share your personal experience, your feelings, your expertise about how to be proactive, how to support child behavior around dogs, how to support dog behavior around children, and ultimately make dog adoptions more successful for everybody. Thank you so very much. I am going to link to your organization, your nonprofit in the show notes, which will be robust, more robust than usual. Um, Again, thank you so much for being here. If you enjoy the Pooch Parenting Podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Also, don't miss www.safekidsanddogs.com if you are a parent with dogs and could use a little extra support. I would be happy to be on your team. Take care.